Oh, to be a fly on the wall in your home. What strange things might I have seen this week or even this morning if I was a fly on the wall in your house? Or if you were a fly on the wall in my house, what oddities would you have observed? We are all unique behind the walls of our homes and different. We all carry our own um, dysfunction, maybe would be the right word to say. None of you are normal. You, you all know that, right? If you see other people and you think, well, that's a normal person, generally they just share in the same dysfunctions that you happen to have as well. And um, I'm not talking about hypocritical, hidden sins in our lives, but none of us are perfect. And even in the things that are good and right, all of us are different. And our homes all operate in unique ways. And when we spend time in other people's homes, especially for extended periods of time, we become even more aware of that. But for all of our differences in all of our homes, six commonalities ought to be consistent with each of our homes. And those are the house rules that we've been looking at for the past six weeks or so, seven weeks. And um, I hope these are making a difference in your lives. And we're going to cover the final last rule today. But can, can we remember all the rules? You guys remember the words? They're one word each, so you should be able to remember them. And I'm going to let you cheat even. You can look in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to end on chapter 4 and verse 1. But these rules start in verse 18. And you'll remember with each of these rules, even though specific people are addressed... These are a common ethic that all believers follow. And so while wives are to submit to their husbands, we all submit to Christ. And each one of us have to submit to certain earthly authorities as well. And while children are commanded to obey, there's none of us that are exempt from obedience to God's word and sometimes to each other and to our leaders. So let's think through the rules together. Anyone remember what's the first rule? You want to say it? Submit, right? A great common Christian ethic and remember also, not just think when we think about house rules, it's not just your home, but also just whatever spheres of influence you're a part of, whatever teamwork that you're in, whether it's a ministry at the church or even this church as a whole, we submit. What was the second one? We love. Love is an important rule. Rule number three, obey. Rule number four was a big one. We see this in 21 where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And the rule is encourage. That word provoke means to stir up. But you can also stir up in a positive way. And encouragement goes a long way. When you say an encouraging word to someone, it makes a huge difference. And then the week before Easter, we looked at the rule work. When everyone in a household is putting their hand to work, whether it's this uh, local church household or whether it's your household, when everyone is working, it, 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 the house runs efficiently. And work is a blessing to us. It is not a result of the curse. It is, it's why we were created to work. You are most fulfilled when you work. And then today we see in chapter 4 and verse 1, Masters. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so this rule we're going to sum up in the word respect. Respect. And what a rule to end on. It covers all the rules. It captures all the rules. And maybe one of the most important rules, respect. 
And we're going we're gonna to really look into that closely here, but we're going to have to try to take two different veins here, maybe two segments in the sermon. Because in this sermon and in the week before Easter as we looked at work, we have the subject matter of servants, masters, my text says bond servants, many of your texts might translate it slaves. We have to address this issue. Uh, and I think we need to address the issue of slavery because one, it's in the text and it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to be prohibited or condemned in the text. I think that we need to address this issue of slavery because and this is really important. I want you to be confident in the relevance, consistency, and the moral reliability of God's Word. And in a time when the Word of God is getting maligned more and more, and it's even mainstream to um, belittle God's Word, to view it as archaic and even bigoted, and usually by those who haven't read the Bible, I, I think it's important that we know what the Bible has to say about slavery. Also, I think it's important that we address this issue of slavery in brief this morning because it's a, it's a problem in the world today. Did you know that? There's an estimated over 40 million slaves alive today, enslaved people today, whether it's forced labor, sex trade, inheritable property, generational servitude, slave, slavery is a problem today. Um, I think 71% of slaves today are females. One out of four slaves are children. Can you imagine that? 71%, one in four. So most slaves are young girls. And what is the Bible, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Do we have anything to say about that? Absolutely the Bible does. And God has something to say about it. And so we need to address it briefly before we move on to the rule of respect. And you can, you can study out yourself. And you can look at um, what Old Testament servitude looked like. You can look at what a slave in the Greco-Roman society looked like, which is what the New Testament is in. And really you can see a stark contrast between those slaves and what comes into our mind when we think of slavery. A modern slave, and by modern slave I'm meaning an American slave. Um, but there's a lot of differences there. We, we're not going to get into all of them, but some of them are education level. In the Greco-Roman culture, a, a slave was highly, usually a highly educated people. Some of the most influential people in society had been educated by their slaves um, it, it also different uh, differences. It wasn't based on race or color of skin. Um, it was usually some sort of economic arrangement with symbiotic advantages, especially in the Old Testament. We saw that. Um, and we can look at a lot of other things. You can look that up. But for us to really see just some biblical thoughts um, on Slavery. Let's look at the text. And the first one, we see it right here in verse 25 and in verse 4. Verse 25 says, the, speaking of the context of slaves need to work, need to be obedient, knowing that you have a master in heaven who outranks your master on earth. But it ends with this warning, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So the Bible doesn't pretend that there isn't the possibility of abuse 
in this relationship. And it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so here we see um, the wrongdoer is threatened and just fairness is commanded. That's one thought that we can have on this is fair justice is commanded. And when you think of any of the abuses of slavery, whether in our American history or on the relevant today on the planet, you can travel across an ocean. Right, There are slaves right here in America as well, by the way. And you'll find that the Bible condemns all of that type of slavery. And here we see that justice and fairness is required. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 21, that would be a verse you can write down, we see also that freedom is preferred. Paul is trying to address the church and how, how do we deal with a, a church that has some masters and some slaves. And here he admits, if you can pursue freedom, do it. Um, but he definitely says that, free, he indicates that freedom is preferred. You can do more for the glory... I assume, I, maybe this is a human thought, but it seems to me that with the freedom, we definitely see this in America, we have been able to do a lot for the glory of God, for the spreading of the gospel, with the freedom that we have. And so Paul's encouraging them, if you can get your freedom, do it. Now both these two thoughts, the fair justice and the freedom is preferred, are greatly demonstrated in the book of Philemon. That would be a great book for you to read. Philemon, one entire book of the Bible, one letter that was captured in God's revelation was a letter where Paul is writing to a, a slave owner and really eloquently pleading with him to release the slave to Paul because he was a partner in the ministry and served Paul well. So there you have Paul pleading with him, trying to persuade him to release his slave. Remember, Paul's mission was not to... Change the political structure of the culture that he was in. His mission was to get the gospel out. And, and that, that makes sense because that's going to have the greatest effect on people. When we think about um, the horrors of modern slavery today, you know, the U.S. government does a lot of efforts, but they're human efforts. And usually somehow they end up making things worse. If we wanted to clean up the slave trade in Liberia, how are we going to do that? Well, we can go in with tanks and guns and we can try to do things, but it's going to have a lot of fallout and it's going to be a lot of negative effects of that and probably isn't going to be successful. Or we can send in key people with a gospel that will change hearts forever. That's what Paul was trying to do. And so in the book of Philemon, he's pleading... And he closes the book with this too. He says, and Paul is doing the ethical thing. He's like, I, you know what? I could, I could just keep Onesimus with me, but I'm sending him back to you. He says this, receive him back, not as a slave, not even as an employee, receive him back as a brother. So it's amazing that in the New Testament church, conceivably you could have masters and uh, and, w and one of their slaves being a deacon or even an elder in the church. Another passage to consider is Exodus chapter 21. Um, I'm going to turn there. You may or may not want to turn there. But Exodus 21, we see a few other um, instructions on slavery, particularly in the Old Testament. This is as um, the nation of Israel is getting developed. And, and, and just think about what... What Jesus, you know, in the Old Testament, we have laws on divorce, 
But remember what Jesus said about that? He said, that's not because that was God's ideal will for you, but for the hardness of your hearts, he, he made these rules. And I, and I think slavery would probably be in that same context. This was in a culture where slaves were prevalent, and he was trying, and God was putting down laws. And you could read chapter 21 in detail, but a few things I think pop out at me. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. And so we see that there was, the servitude was temporary. The servitude was temporary. Seven years and then you're out. And so we, in scripture, we don't see any generational slavery. We don't see that. Uh, the Old Testament slavery that we see in the nation of Israel is so different than what we see in our American history and present today. Look at verse, um, look at verse five. It says, if the slave plainly says, I love, at the end of the seven years, if the plain, if the, um, slave plainly say, says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awe, basically give him an earring, and he shall be his slave forever. But notice that the slave had a choice. And also, this is what is called a bond servant. This is the primary description that Paul uses to describe himself. I'm a bond servant of Christ. And so we have that imagery on display, but it's important to note that the slave had a choice. We see in verse 11, the slaves had rights. It says that if, in verses 7 through 11, we have a list of responsibilities and um, and requirements. In verse 11 says, if the master does not do these three things for her, he shall go out for uh, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. So she had rights, and if those rights were violated, she was free. And then also, one last thing we see in verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him. That's a pretty good description of the American slave system, isn't it? The transatlantic slave system. You would kidnap people, sell them, and enslave them. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him. So if you came by a stolen slave, you shall be put to death. So the Bible does have some things to say about slavery. And there's a lot more that could be said about slavery. But you're capable. You can study those things out for yourself. But I just want to emphasize that the Word of God is not antiquated. It is not out of date. We have not matured or developed as a society beyond it. It has something to say even today about slavery. It's reliable. But now, without minimizing uh, the severity of human slavery, we, we need to move on to more pleasant commands in Scripture and pull our attention back to our own homes and think through these six rules that we've looked at and uh, it's just as relevant, but it's definitely, we're going to be changing gears here. The six rules, how you operate in your home. The final one being respect. Again, in Colossians chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, as we look at this final rule to respect, I've kind of pulled out three parameters 
to help define this rule. And we have a rule, a principle, and then a factor to consider as we treat each other with respect in our home. And, and notice, too, that the, the specific application is from a master to a slave. And we tend to feel justified in disrespecting people that we consider below us, whether they're, whether they're societally above us or not. But we tend, if, they are, if we think less of them, we feel justified in disrespecting them. That specifically is what is being prohibited in this passage. But as we look at verse 1, the thing that jumps out to me is this reminds me so much of the golden rule. You guys know the golden rule, right? right? What's the golden rule? Anyone want to say it? Treat others as you would like to be treated. This was the, 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 the word golden rule. My, it is, it's even in, um, when I go to the golden rule in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, it even has the title in my Bible text. It says the golden rule. That term came about in the 17th century, I think, somewhere in there. But the idea of the golden rule is this is the one rule, just like the ring in Lord of the Rings, the one rule, uh, one ring to rule them all. And uh, that's kind of a negative example, but that's the idea of the golden rule. This one rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. And uh, I think we have a sign that back from back, uh, can we put that up, that image of this? I think this was in a factory. The rule, the rule that governs this factory. Therefore, whatsoever you would, uh, that men should do to you, do even unto them. We could kind of have this as the rule in our home. How you want to be treated is how you treat others. And um, again, this is a quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Um, and, it, and, it, and so many other rules are captured in this one rule. Of course, this isn't the platinum rule because that would be what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And the second one to it is this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we have this, this golden rule here. This comes from Leviticus chapter 19, um, and I think verse 18. Let me look that up real quick. And so we have this consistent through the Old Testament, consistent even to the New Testament. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Uh, in the Levitical law, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. People who belong to Jesus obey this rule. We treat others with respect. We treat others the way we would want to be treated. But as we look in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, we see kind of an acceleration of the golden rule. It's not just treat others the way you would like to be treated, but we see treat others the way you would like to be treated because the way you do treat others is the way you will be treated. He says, you have a master in heaven. You want to be treated fairly by your master? Treat your servants fairly. And so there we see not just the golden rule, but uh, the principle of, rep of uh, reciprocity. A reciprocity principle. This, this puts feet on the golden rule. Escalates it from sentiment to promised outcome. Don't just treat people the way you want to be treated, but be assured the way you treat other people is the way you will be treated. We see this on a divine level. 
In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, forgive others, your Father won't forgive you. In again, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 35, the parable of the rich man that had someone that owed him so much money, and that man was forgiven his debt. And you remember, he walked out immediately, found someone that owed him a minor debt, and he beat him and sent him to jail. And Jesus' uh, application of this is, so if you don't forgive others from your heart, so your Father won't forgive you either. Now, so what is going on here? This is a reciprocal principle. It's not that we earn our salvation by forgiving others, but this is true. If we would fail to forgive, if we withhold forgiveness, that is an indication of a kind of heart that does not understand the sin we have against God. When we withhold forgiveness, what are we doing? Compare yourself to a God who is flawless and forgives great offenses to me, who I'm far from flawless, but I'm refusing to forgive. In a way, I'm placing myself above God. I'm saying, you've offended me in such a way that I cannot forgive you. God might be able to forgive you, but I can't. What does that say about your relationship to God? And so we see this reciprocal kind of relationship on a divine level. But we also see it on a human level. I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Would you turn there real quick? Just keep your finger in Colossians, but turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll find a passage, maybe one of the most popular passages. I would argue maybe this passage is the most memorized verse by unbelievers. Unchurched people, if they, they may not know it, they may not even know John 3.16, but they know this verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. They all know it. We know it. Listen to the passage, and let's we're gonna see that on a human level we have this reciprocal principle. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And then this kind of sums it up. This sums up everything he's saying here. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I think Jesus is describing a simple life principle here. That is captured in our rule of respect. With what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So think about how that works in your home. If you're a person who exercises patience, when the time comes that you have exasperated somebody else, they are more likely to exercise patience towards you. If you're a gentle person, you are more likely to be treated gently. If you're an exacting person, if you are precise in your expectations and you come down hard when someone deviates from that, that's how you can, be, you can expect to be treated when you uh, fail someone's expectations. If you are an understanding person, people will be understanding to you. And so we have this reciprocity principle in action, in the home, demonstrated through the rule of respect. How you treat others, you treat others the way you want to be treated. Further than that, the way you treat others is the way you will be treated. And now further than that even, we're going to see a transparency factor. One last parameter to consider, the transparency factor. Again, let's think about 
the context here. This is talking about slave owners and slaves. What we have here is a power difference. And whenever there's a difference of power, there's potential for abuse, right? So let's think about this transparency factor, which is basically nothing's going to remain hidden. But if you don't respect those, even in secret, it's, you're going to get found out. One way or the other, it's going to come to light. God will find out, and He will find you out to others. One of the first verses I memorized as a child, and this is a verse that many times in my life haunted me. When I knew I was doing something wrong and I was in secret, no one was watching me. The Holy Spirit would whisper this verse to me. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. Do you know it? Be sure your sins will find you out. We see it all the time in other people's lives. Think about spiritual leaders. Ravi Zacharias, what a great example. He had all his sins covered, tight, concealed. No one knew about it. Then he dies. Then they come out. Be sure your sins will find you out. So with this power differential and the potential for abuse, where does that land in our lives? Um, most, most men are stronger than women. There might be a few wives here that could take their husbands on. Uh, most of us men probably don't want to find out. Um, but there's a physical differential there. And we need to be aware of that. Might doesn't make right. We need to treat those that are physically weaker than us with due respect, knowing that we have someone stronger than us that's more righteous than us, and he will demand an accounting. Parents to children, same thing. Don't ever, don't ever bully your children. I hate to see children bullied, especially by their parents. They, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Jesus made this very clear. He says, they have angels that stand before their Father in heaven. They, are, they have representation before the throne. And God says, rather than drawing one of these little ones into sin, or rather than offending one of these little ones, or rather than causing one of these little ones to stumble, it's better that you put a millstone around your neck and cast yourself into the ocean. God cares for those that can't defend themselves. So your children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, the little ones in your home fall into this category of you need to respect them. You need to show your children respect. They're a human with dignity. God has entrusted them into your care. You're like a curator of this beautiful piece of art that God is cultivating. And one day they're going to be an adult, fellow worshiper making impact on society. And you need to respect that. One more application that I'll give is, think about outside your home, but when you come in contact with children. Maybe you're serving. Many of you serve in our children's ministry. You're downstairs with these little ones. Or you're back in the nursery. Maybe you have a job where you're, you're a teacher. You're with little ones. Or maybe you have, um, you're taking care of invalid people that are, maybe they're old, but they can't care for themselves. These are all practical applications of this concept that we need to treat others with respect because we have a master in heaven who we will stand before one day. And here we have the transparency factor. You may treat them with disrespect and not get caught by them, but God sees it, God knows it, and be sure your sin will find you out. 
You treat your spouse differently at home than you do in public. Be sure your sin will find you out. You're a good, patient parent at church, but at home you're cruel to your children. Be sure your sin will find you out. Jesus speaks of this specifically in Luke chapter 12, where he's talking about hypocrisy. And listen to what he says. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So we have the golden rule, the reciprocity principle, and the transparency factor. All of these are the parameters of the one rule. Just show people respect. So these are the six house rules. And I believe that if you commit to these rules, parents, if you demonstrate them, your children will pick them up. You could do no better thing for their future marriage than to live by these rules. Commit to them. Remind your family of these rules. In the newsletter tomorrow, I'm going to include an image of kind of like a little poster. And we could we can put your name, your family name at the top. If you just email me and say, I want one of those, you can frame it, you can you could uh, maybe wrap it like uh, I don't know what I'm saying, though those 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 pictures where they're like a, a square box and they kind of sit on the wall. What's that? Yes, that's it. I don't know what I'm saying, sorry. But uh, you can pin it on your laundry room wall, you can hang it on the fridge. The point is you have a list of these rules that when your children are behaving a certain way or your husband is behaving a certain way. You can come and say, remember, we've committed to these as a family. And some of you may be thinking, Pastor, you don't know my family. We're really messed up. In fact, I'll be surprised if we're still married next year. Some of you might be thinking that. Let me assure you, the problems always seem far more complex than they are. And the solution, the biblical solution, always appears far too simplistic to work. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. These rules are difficult to follow, except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may be the only one in your house following these rules for a long time before it starts to catch on, but you've got to be committed to it. And I promise you, if you live by these rules, what you're doing is you're putting Jesus Christ first. And Christ is always the best solution. Christ's solution never fails. His way always works. His vision always leads us to wholeness, to wellness, to holiness. So I invite you to not just let these last six or seven sermons disappear, fall by the wayside, stuff them in the notes in your Bible and never see them again. Put these on display in your home, physically and practically with your life. Let's pray.